Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books in Sports podcast. My name is Bob D'Angelo, and I am a longtime sports journalist. Today we'll be speaking with Paul Hensler, the author of The New Boys of Summer, Baseball's Radical Transformation in the Late 60s. Hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome back to the New Books in Sports podcast. Our guest today is Paul Hensler, the author of The New Boys of Summer, Baseball's Radical Transformation in the Late 60s. Paul, thanks so much for joining us today. And thank you very much for reaching out, Bob. I really appreciate it. Great. Paul is a baseball historian and a member of the Society of American Baseball Research. And he owns a master's degree in history from Trinity College in Connecticut. And his first baseball book was The American League in Transition, 1965 to 1975, How Competition Thrived When the Yankees Didn't. He lectures about baseball on a variety of subjects. So, Paul, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic and sports background. Well, you uh, you touched on quite a bit there, and uh, again, I I refer very quickly back to my academic background, uh, most notably as a, a late in life history student. I've always been enjoyed, uh, always have enjoyed reading uh, more current American uh, history, uh, especially through the 20th century. Um, it was through uh, some unfortunate circumstances of unemployment that I kind of got back into the classroom as a as an adult. And uh, my wife was saying, you should do something like take some history courses. Otherwise, you're going to drive me crazy and drive yourself crazy. So for, for something to do, um, I had uh, enrolled at uh, local uh, state, uh, state college, Eastern Connecticut State uh, University, uh, just to take a history course. And uh, evolving from that was uh, sort of this renewed official academic love of history. And uh, a few years after that, I uh, ended up pursuing my master's degree at uh at uh, Trinity College. In the meantime, I was able to uh, to gain uh, gainful employment, if you will, and uh, I just kept going with the coursework. And uh, I found my experience at Trinity to be extremely rewarding. Uh, really uh, gave me the ability to think and analyze uh, critically historical events, people, uh, and put things in context. And uh, after the 1994 uh, baseball season, the really bad strike year. Um, I have to admit, I had a, a very serious falling out with baseball that I basically just stuck to uh, following my my team of choice, uh, the California Angels, now Los Angeles Angels, and uh, pretty much blotted a lot of other things out. But uh, upon commencement from Trinity, um, I had that nagging question in the back of my mind. That I thought, gee, this would be uh, interesting to uh, uh, answer. And that became the first book. I was always wondering about that 11-year interregnum of the Yankee dynasties from 1964 to 1976, uh, those 11 years in between. What was really going on with that? And uh, I wrote that book from a decidedly non-Yankee perspective. Um, I do cover some of the major uh, overall general events that took place in baseball history, such as some labor issues and the creation of the designated hitter. But the primary focus of that book was on the Minnesota Twins, the Baltimore Orioles, and also the Oakland Athletics. Uh, those were the three American League, uh, I refer to them, I guess, as like powerhouse teams or, or the more successful 
in the case of the Orioles and the Athletics, that was obviously very, very true. The Twins had a little bit more of a, a desultory path. Uh, they won the uh, American League pennant in 1965, almost won it again in 67, of course, in that great 14 pennant race of, uh, of 67. And then the first two divisional titles after the uh, American League and National League both split into East and West divisions. Um, so their path was a little bit more, more desultory. But I concentrated on those three teams because I thought those were really the uh, the premier American League teams that kind of filled in that uh, that Yankee absence from uh, from 65 to 75. And, of course, the Yankee dynasty kind of revved up again uh, to a certain degree in uh, 1976. Uh, winning uh, three American League pennants in a row. Um, this current book is kind of an offshoot of that. Uh, what I've done is I've gotten into more general topics with regard to baseball, but I've, I've tried to reduce the time frame greatly to the very late 60s. Um, and again, that wasn't a perfect science. I talk about labor issues and uh, stadium construction, as you're probably familiar with from having read the book. Um, so time doesn't necessarily begin for those topics right at the end of the decade. So I give a little bit of backfill to uh, explain sort of the evolution, for example, with information technology. The great breakthrough Macmillan Encyclopedia of 1969, uh, that certainly had a number of predecessors. And I wanted to uh, help the reader through that particular evolution. So that's why I step back and I'm talking about uh, various encyclopedias and record books throughout the, uh, the uh, 20th century. But the real climax of the book at that point in time for technology is really coming up to the creation of the uh, Macmillan Encyclopedia. So in some instances, um, I do step back to kind of uh, fill in uh, to get more information for the reader. And uh, in looking at all these broad topics and realizing what a transitional time, 1968, 1969, happened to be for Major League Baseball um, is delineated in the, uh, in the individual chapters. I think is uh, really what has uh, drawn the attention of the book, that there's an awful lot of us baby boomers out there. And this really plays to the era when uh, many of us, I'm guessing yourself included, were uh, were uh, very early teenagers at that uh, particular point in the late 60s. So I, I think it will resonate uh, with uh, quite a few people. Oh, I agree with that because I was about, well, let's see, I was about 11, 12, and 68, and 69. So, and actually, um, a teacher of mine actually gave me the Macmillan uh, Encyclopedia, the, the original one from 69, which I always appreciated. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, what, what uh, got you interested in writing about sports history? I mean, it sounds like you obviously love sports. And, and are you from the West Coast or did you happen to be just an East Coast guy that liked the California Angels? Uh, no, I've, I'm a Connecticut native. I've lived in Connecticut my whole life and uh, probably will continue for the rest of my days. Um, I had an interesting uh, evolution of sorts to, uh, to fandom with the Angels. Uh, the, uh, the 1970 team, um, I, I kind of fell on the team in 1969 because if you recall, their old style hats had the halo was actually stitched right into the top of the cap. And I thought, boy, that, that, that's pretty cool. And uh, at that particular time, again, living in Connecticut with the Yankees close by, and the, uh, they had not uh, not produced too many winning teams because uh, they were in the doldrums. Uh, the Red Sox had kind of fallen out of favor after the miracle of, uh, of 67, of course, with the uh, impossible dream team. So as a youngster, I'm kind of casting about, and uh, I became infatuated with the uh, particular cap. Um, I guess when you're, you're 12 years old or thereabouts, you know, anything is uh, – Anything is fair game for drawing your interest. But um, I, I kept that interest up. And it wasn't until uh, many years later, a few years later, 
uh, joining the Society for American Baseball Research in the summer of 1979. And uh, I was a member for quite a number of years, I guess about maybe 16 years or so. And again, that bad fallout he had from the uh, 94 strike, I just kind of let my membership lapse. But um, I became interested in writing about baseball in particular uh, around the late 80s, um, sort of an offshoot of different research projects that the Baseball Research Journal published by Sabre uh, would take into account for uh, various topics. I realized that um, this is something, a question I wanted to answer in a, a little uh, bugbear as far as I was concerned, was that back at the time that the leagues were split into East and West Divisions, we recall that all they did for both leagues is they just alternated which team had the home field advantage for the respective championship series. So in 1969, I believe it was the, um, I think it was the Twins. No, I'm sorry. It was, it was, it was Baltimore that had the home field advantage, but the, um, in the National League, it was the Braves were given uh, home field advantage. And all they kept doing from year after year, I think I have that right for 69, but all they kept doing for many years was just alternating regardless of the record, the seasonal record of the division champ. So obviously in Baltimore's case, uh, they had the powerhouse teams from 69 through 71 where they just really obliterated the competition. And I believe only one of those years that they actually had the home field advantage in the ALCS. They thought this is really kind of crazy. So um, with 20 years worth of data in 1989, I started this little project because we had uh, playoff data from 69 through uh, 1988 and just investigated uh, the division winning teams and kind of worked it backwards to see uh the overall season record and also the record that that team had against their divisional opponent in the ALCS. So that was my first little research project. And I looked with much envy upon uh, so many of the writers that were getting published in the baseball research journal. But again, I didn't have the real good writing skills. I was interested in history, but I just didn't have the writing skills to be able to pursue anything more than that. So <laughs> from that first writing project until I was published again, the baseball research journal um, was probably oh, I don't know, 15 years or thereabouts. And uh, I undertook another interesting project that was published, I think, in 2011. Um, again, another one of those uh, theoretical questions. Um, in 1973, the first year of the designated hitter, if Nolan Ryan had been able to face the opposing team's pitcher, how many strikeouts would he have accumulated? So I took him uh, his seasonal record game by game and kind of reconstructed the uh, – the batting order minus the other team's designated hitter, inserting that team's starting pitcher and kind of reworking the game, uh, not quite inning by inning, but more or less uh, situationally. So if the team, if the, uh, if the team that Ryan was pitching against was falling behind, then they likely would have used the pinch hitter when the pitcher was coming to bat, say in the, the fifth or sixth inning, that sort of thing. So I reconstructed all the games anyhow. And, uh, figured out that Ryan probably would have struck out, uh, i trying to remember the total, so like 406 or 408 batters without the designated hitter. Also working that backwards against Ryan, too, that if the Angels were, say, down by a run and they had runners on base, when he probably would have come up uh, in the batting order that he would have been pinch hit for. So any subsequent strikeouts that he had, say, from the seventh or eighth inning on, at that point I would discount. So I tried to be very diligent in how I reconstructed those games as a, an interesting statistical research project. But um, yeah, it was uh, that was a, a fun thing to do. But uh, the actual writing 
uh, process really came out of uh, my uh, studies as an undergraduate history student, still late in life, but uh, also especially at uh, through you know, the work that I did at Trinity, where you know critical thinking really started to come into play. And uh, I have one professor in particular, uh, Gene Leach, who's now uh, retired, but uh, he could be viewed in some ways as being almost uh, pedantic, very hypercritical. But he was the one that I really learned the most from as far as uh, reading uh, ability, uh, analytical ability, and uh, putting words to the page that uh, really enabled me to create a nice narrative for the reader. So uh, that's that's been uh, probably the, the biggest strength that I've been able to draw from uh, in the last 10 years uh, after writing uh, two books now. Yeah. You know, um, I kind of got the impression that um, like 1968 and 1969 were sort of like a, a line of demarcation for Major League Baseball. You know, 68 was a year of the pitchers, 69, you know, you could probably say it was a year of the amazing Mets. But what did you uh, find so fascinating about those two years? I think it's the transition that, uh, and I believe I have this in the preface, that uh, we're going from the, the single unit, if you will, 10-team leagues. We have 10 teams in both the National and the American League. Expansion has now really forced the issue. And all of a sudden now we have the leagues are splitting. We have 1968 being such a pitching dominant year that it forces – the powers that be in Major League Baseball to say, you know, we really have to do something. We have, uh, you know, just a tremendous number of shutouts. Games are, are very boring. We're, we're falling into almost like a, a soccer mentality in a way. We're a one-run one run game. We have a one goal one goal game in soccer. Uh, kind of getting to that situation where the game itself is becoming boring. Um, so the rules changes are enacted that they lower the mound. The strike zone is adjusted to uh, to take a little bit of advantage away from the pitcher, so we shrink the strike zone a bit. And uh, to a lesser degree, uh, there's <laughs> there's one more effort to uh, try to banish the spitball. We have to do something to get rid of the spitball. Uh, again, taking that uh, that perceived advantage away from uh, from the pitchers. So all these things are really coming into uh, into a major confluence at the end of 1968. That uh, expansion has been decided upon, rules changes have been enacted. Uh, and we, of course, have a new commissioner. Uh, the, uh, the the big piece of the puzzle here is uh, William Eckert is fired by the league owners at the winter meetings in December 1968, and installed in his place as a, a National League attorney who worked for the for the NL. Uh, I believe uh, Bowie Kuhn came to the National League in 1954, and uh, a lot of baseball smart, so he knew. Uh, the legal side of Major League Baseball, uh, familiar with uh, their internal issues and such. And he's really charged now with moving the game forward. Also, as pointed out in the book, uh, throughout the 1960s, professional football is getting a stronger and stronger foothold in the minds of many, many sports fans. And also in uh, conjunction with this, we have the doubling in size of the National Hockey League going from six, six teams to 12. Uh, we have expansion in the National Basketball Association. They, too, are expanding across the country. So we have uh, bursts of franchises such as the Seattle Supersonics, the California Golden Seals. So wintertime sports are also finding their niche across the country as well. So this is a very, very fluid, very uh, transformative time uh, for all sports, really, but for baseball in particular, which faces the danger of falling behind, especially in competition with professional football. Uh, so I look at this as such a very, very dynamic period that really, uh, really justified having a closer scrutiny. 
So the main points of expansion, league division, rules changes, and commissioners occupy what I would say the uh, or the forefront, the major, major issues confronting the game. Ancillary to that, of course, is we get a little bit deeper into the book. We have the cultural aspects that are swirling around that are affecting the game as well. So, for example, we have uh, in Chapter 7, the longest chapter of the book, and that arguably is the most fun to write. We have the realization that there are still racial issues within the game of baseball. We have the Vietnam War affecting all corners of the country. And this also affects Major League Baseball vis-a-vis players that have to have uh, military service or fulfill a military obligation even in the middle of the season. So that's certainly affecting uh, the balance of team rosters at this time because we have an active military draft war for those who are able to um, uh, take the option of serving in the reserves or National Guard, what have you. Uh, drug usage, the drug culture in the 1960s with more and more rebellious youth uh, is coming onto the uh, cultural landscape, certainly. And uh, all these things are coming together at once, especially at the end of the decade. Uh, Once we get past the the summer of love in 1967 and we get into 1968, we find that this light at the end of the tunnel in Vietnam uh, was really just an illusion. And more and more people are becoming outraged. The anti-war protests are ramping up. Of course, the Democratic National Convention in Chicago um, really just uh, blows everything uh, wide open. And of course, and I was just uh, doing some uh, little bit of extra writing on this today, uh, we have the assassination of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy in April and June of 1968. Um Baseball has a very stilted reaction upon the death of Martin Luther King. Um, It's insisted and finally decided that baseball will postpone opening day by basically just one day um, in deference to uh, honoring Dr. King. However, the situation is much more complicated uh, almost two months later when Bobby Kennedy is assassinated. The season's really in full flower now. Uh, We're coming into a weekend with – Big big things are planned across baseball. I believe the Yankees had a bat day double header scheduled against the Angels uh, that Saturday, um, that Saturday or Sunday, I forget which day. The Mets were playing um, at a, a bat day event out at Candlestick Park. Um, there's just general confusion all over because baseball has no uniform policy to say, okay, we have uh, a very notable public figure has passed away. Um, Let's not make the same mistake that pro football did when John Kennedy was assassinated in November 1963. Uh, Pro football made the mistake of saying we're playing the games anyway, um, which really was a a public relations disaster. Um, In the case of Major League Baseball, they have no set policy. And even upon kind of uh, uh, slipping by after the death of Martin Luther King, because opening day uh, uh, schedules have a lot of holes in them to allow for inclement weather, that sort of thing. Uh, so the timing uh, was slightly in favor of baseball, even though the reaction was still to but when, when uh, Bobby Kennedy is assassinated, it's a whole different, uh, very, very chaotic situation. Um, so, again, all these current events are coming into play. And, again, it all just really points at how dynamic this particular time was. So even these subtopics like information technology and stadium construction, this is ongoing uh, throughout the 1960s, and it all plays to what the landscape of the country uh, looked like at that particular time. And I tried to get all those different elements uh, incorporated into one one volume. 
Yeah. I think that, um, and you'll probably agree with this, 1968 might have been one of the most turbulent years we've had in the last 60, 70 years, I think. Yes. And uh, in some other reading, non-baseball reading, reading that I've been doing uh, the last couple months, uh, not only is that happening here in America, but there are anti-war protests in different parts of the world, uh, riots in Paris. Um, of course, we had the, the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia in August of 1968. Uh, there was trouble in Mexico City. Of course, the 68 Summer Olympics, we have the, the Black Power demonstration by John Carlos and Tommy Lee Smith. Uh, so there's just a lot going on around the world that in this particular year, there's just so much unrest. And uh, of course, uh, we're still faced with racial issues in this country through the, uh, through the 1960s. Uh, civil rights demonstrations, uh, subsequent riots and violence in you know, major cities like Detroit and Newark, where many people were killed, the Watts riots in, in 1965 in Los Angeles. Of course, this is all applying to a very, very dynamic uh, period of years uh, within American history. So you're absolutely correct about that, that, uh, you know, especially 1968 being so, so volatile that it almost seemed like the the country was coming apart. And I, I made uh, one little comment also in the book, uh, just uh, glancing through it a short time ago, that very ironically, two of the, the more popular rock and roll songs, uh, or pop songs of the summer 1968 were um, uh, fired by the crazy world of Arthur Brown. And the, uh, the, the more raucous of the two versions of Revolution recorded by the Beatles. So, you know, it, it's just incredible that even uh, the music culture was really playing to the time that, you know, anti-war protest music started to get ramped up as the, as the, uh, the years uh, dragged out in the 1960s. That, you know, here you have this, this absolutely turbulent summer, and uh, these are two of the most popular songs on the charts at the time. And I think you all said Street Fight Man by the Stones that year as well. So you get that. Yeah, that one I'm not sure about. I was uh, thinking of the other two, but yeah, I know Street Fight Man did come out about that time. I'm not sure if that was uh, 68 or 69, but yes, you're right. It is in that uh, general time frame. Let me uh, let me back up a little bit because uh, one one of the things in the book that, uh, and I'm sure baseball fans scratched their heads about this too, is about Spike Eckert. I mean, uh, he just seemed like he was out of his league as a commissioner. And, and you know, one, why did they pick him? And two, what made him so ineffective? Why he was picked, I, I think, is kind of a mystery. Um uh, one of my uh, fellow Sabre members here in Connecticut, he uh, also released a book very recently, uh, Baseball on the Brink, The Crisis of uh, 1968. And I would recommend that also to you and uh, other listeners out there. I do have the book. I haven't gotten to read it just yet. But uh, Bill was talking at our Sabre luncheon just this past Saturday and uh, was uh, mentioning pretty much the same thing that uh, I incorporate a little uh, anecdote in my book. Um Eckerd was a retired Air Force general, and of course, the club owners want to have somebody leading them, quote unquote, leading them, uh, who's very pliable uh, because the owners basically want to do what they want to do and uh, just get a sanction by the commissioner. So, uh, Eckerd supposedly one of his assets, if it could be called that, was that he had connections in Washington because he was an Air Force general, and it's true that he had his MBA. Um, he was good with logistics. He had a good business sense, but his connections in Washington, D.C. were military. They were not political connections. And that was probably one of the biggest mistakes and compounded drastically and very unfortunately the fact that he had 
basically no baseball knowledge whatsoever. So as far as being a pliable person, uh, the owners perhaps couldn't have looked for, uh, expect anything better. But the man himself just turned out to be an embarrassment. Um, he was not even aware that the Dodgers had moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. And here we are in 1965 when he's named as the commissioner. He didn't even know a simple fact like that. Um, he had this propensity for uh, having all his speeches, all the uh, the notes for any particular speech that he was going to give were done on uh, notes on uh, the old index cards. And he, he, he had this tendency to just uh, pull index cards. He couldn't speak without the index cards is basically what his biggest problem was. But uh, there were certain occasions where he took the wrong set of index cards out and he was addressing a, a, a gathering of airline pilots or something like that. And he gave uh, he was giving a speech based on notes written for a completely different subject. So he's bumbling. He's very inept. He's propped up in this commissionership by two very qualified individuals, Lee McPhail, who came over. Uh, from the, he left the Baltimore Orioles front office at the end of 1965 and joined Eckert's staff. Uh, McPhail, very, very intelligent uh, baseball front office man. And also by Joe Reichler, who uh, worked in the commissioner's office. Um, I believe he was a, uh, in, years later, he was a co-editor for um, several baseball publications, I believe including maybe the third or fourth edition of the McMillan Baseball Encyclopedia. So he certainly had... Uh, had baseball smarts, but you know they're trying to prop up Becker, and it's instances like the reaction, uh, baseball's reaction to the assassinations of uh, of King and Kennedy in 1968 that really uh, put a, a bad public relations spin on on baseball. That uh, uh, here he's really showing his his very very incompetent side, even more so when. Uh, the, the country needed something to rally around and say, even, you know, for both King and Kennedy, well, we should be fair about it to say uh, men of these stature, men, men with stature like this uh, should be honored uh, with, with baseball's own day of mourning or, or fully recognize the, the tragedy that those events certainly were. And uh, one comment I heard uh, in the course of doing the research is basically what happened with Eckerd. Uh, especially in Kennedy's situation. He was trying to make everybody happy, let everybody uh, handle how, whether they want to postpone the game, whether they want to delay the start of the game until after Kennedy's funeral, that sort of thing. And in trying to make everybody happy, he made nobody happy. And this really became an embarrassment. So uh, roughly two and a half years or so, not quite three years into uh, in Deckard's term, he's jettisoned and uh, Bowie Kuhn becomes uh, kind of, in a way, uh, and I agree with Bill Reisick on this. And he has the, the same opinion on this as I do, that uh, as excoriated as Bowie Kuhn became later on in his tenure as commissioner, through the, especially through the 1970s. But at the moment that he was brought on board, uh, he really did seem to be the, the right man in the right place at the right time. He, he takes office in early February of 1969, just before training camps are supposed to open. And he's immediately confronted with a big labor issue that the uh, the players are going to walk away uh, in a concerted job action, uh, this being led by Marvin Miller. Um, so Kuhn has to juggle that responsibility um, and move the game forward, which they do. Uh, in some instances, that particular job action uh, might have been more bluff than, than substance because uh, back then the salaries were scaled back far, far less than what we have today, even proportional to uh, rates of inflation. The, the money paid out to players just wasn't there. Many players had to have part-time jobs in the offseason. 
Um, they spent you know literally generations being convinced that you know the money they were making was all great because they're getting paid to play a game. So this is really uh, being uh, being paid to have fun out there in the field and not be the real working world. This is such a bonus for all the ball players and. Uh, that brainwashing went on for for generations, but now Marvin Miller is putting a different spin on things. So uh, he's leading the players' association in a more aggressive direction, and certainly for profit for the players. It took uh, him a couple of years to win their confidence over uh, the players themselves, being a very conservative group of men, and it, it took a lot of convincing for them to realize that hey, yeah, Marvin Miller is really doing a good job of looking after our best interests. Don't focus constantly on the issues of the pension. What about your average, your uh, your normal salary that you're supposed to be making? Um, for many years, the pension plan was always the big thing, uh, especially coming out of World War II because guys who went into the service, not ball players, but uh, in general, spent years in the Army, you retired, you get a pension. So pension was the, the magic buzzword that even the players kept focusing on for so long. You, you put your service time as a major league, you get a pension at the end of it. And yes, this is all well and good, but you know there are other issues beside that. So again, those start to take root. Uh, under his direction, again, all coming in the uh, mid to late 1960s. Yeah, it was, it was surprising about what I read about Bowie Kuhn because uh, I think a lot of baseball fans just remember him later in, in his career when he was talking about, you know, the best interest of baseball and all this other stuff cropping up around. But, you know, it seemed like early on he was fairly effective. Yeah, and again, that's what leading to my comment. He's probably the right man at the right time. Um, in the summer of 1969, one of the more pleasant things to look forward to as far as baseball is concerned was celebrating its centennial. The centennial anniversary took place in 1969. Um, all the players' uniforms, the managers' uniforms, coaches all had that little, um, the now ubiquitous uh, Major League logo. That was the uh, the first year that that was introduced. Uh, this is a commemoration of baseball's 100th anniversary. And that summer, in conjunction with the All-Star Game, played in Washington, D.C., Baseball had this wonderful gala celebration. Uh, there was the naming of the all-time greatest team, um, the all-time greatest living players. Um, it was really a very special occasion, and all these all these baseball personalities were welcome to Washington D.C. and the White House because even though uh, it's kind of a, a corny title, if you will, you know the, the, the commander in chief is always the number one, whatever. So in this case, Richard Nixon was the number one baseball fan. Well, he generally was a, a very serious baseball fan. So him coming together with Bowie Kuhn, and I did find some uh, documents up at the uh, research center at uh, the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown that really substantiate this. Um, when the Macmillan Encyclopedia is published, I believe there's a note up there where um, uh, Nixon sends uh, the thank you note to Kuhn for sending him two copies of the, uh, the brand new Baseball Encyclopedia. You know, there really was a relationship there because Nixon was such a fan. And as part of the all-star festivities, when all these uh, great past and living uh, ballplayers are brought to Washington as part of the all-star game, there's this huge reception in the, I believe it was in the East Room of the White House. And, you know, there's just, you know, baseball personality after baseball personality is going through the line, shaking hands with the president. And this is really a high point. Uh, Hewn, at, at that moment in time, was five months into his tenure. He'd been given a, a, six-year con- a, a six-month probationary contract. And uh, the owners were so pleased by the following month with the way uh, attendance had spiked up, of course, uh, with the uh, rules changes with the mound and the strike zone adjustment. Uh, offensive production was uh, was on the upswing. It was starting to taper back again, even at that point, but at least it was far better than it had been uh, in 1968. So as far as Q is concerned, this is all coming together very propitiously for him. 
So he's awarded a seven-year contract in August of, uh, of 1969 for the reward that he's done to, to help really get the ship back on course. So uh, again, as far as he's concerned, uh, in moving forward into the future, then yes, we have the designated hitter. Uh, but he's also dealing with some other issues as well, a little bit beyond the scope of this book. Uh, he handles the suspension of Denny McLean in 1970. Uh, McLean uh, caught carrying a gun uh, in the Tigers clubhouse, and then uh, the racketeering and such all starts to unravel his career. Um, so Kuhn has to deal with that harshly. Uh, one of the defining moments of 1970 also was the publication of Ball Four, Jim Bowden's uh, diary uh, of his time with the Seattle Pilots in 1969. And that was just such a transformative book that now somebody is talking about what's going on behind the scenes in the clubhouse. And it's not a reporter, it's an active player. And here he is calling out his old Yankee teammates. And, uh, you know, of course, this ruffles a lot of feathers. Uh, Kuhn calls Bowden uh, into his office in, in New York and says, I want you to issue a statement to say that everything you wrote in the book is false. <laughs> and, of course, the Bowden is having none of it. Uh, he's standing by his guns, and uh, it ultimately becomes one of the most important sports books ever written. Uh, so I believe we're, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of uh, the publication of the book in uh, 20, 2020. And uh, so, again, there's one more thing that's coming about, and that particular book is written by arguably a, a, pitcher, a pitcher long past his, uh, past his prime. He had uh, injury issues. Um, He's picked up just as an expansion player, and here he sits down just to kind of write this, this fun tell-all book. And assisting him, of course, is Leonard Schechter. Uh, Schechter plays a huge role because he is part of that uh, little subset, that little fraternity of sports writers that become known as the Chipmunks. And the Chipmunks acquire uh, that not-so-endearing uh, not so term by older sports writers in the early 1960s who, by their standards, you're supposed to write about the game itself, what's going on in the field and uh, what happened in the game last night. But the new breed of players, the younger, uh, the new uh, breed of sports writers, the younger guys, they want to tell stories about what's going on in the clubhouse, what's going on off the field. And uh, so guys like Leonard Schechter are kind of in the vanguard of that. Um, I believe, I'm trying to, I think it was uh, perhaps Phil Pepe may have been uh, part of that group also. Um so all of a sudden now you have a new breed of sports writers with a different attitude, a different outlook on what they should be reporting. So it's a perfect conflation that here Bowden has this story to tell about uh, the different antics of his old Yankee teammates and, um, you know, all the, the salacious going on in the clubhouse, that sort of thing. And he finds really a perfect partner in Len Schechter who's willing to, to take this and edit, the, edit all the material and, and uh, put ball for it together. Um, I read Ball Four as a teenager, and of course, focusing on you know the the, the antics and, and whatnot. Uh, as part of my research for writing the New Boys of Summer, I read reread it from start to finish and took an awful lot of notes, and just really un at that point understanding how incredible, insightful Bowden was as a I believe he was twenty nine years old when he wrote the book. Um, it just incredibly perspective in looking at his realization of he's on to this game of how management is trying to manipulate the players. Uh, he's not really having any buying this argument about, Oh yeah, you're getting paid to play a game. And uh, don't worry if you land on the disabled list and we have to send you down, 
don't worry, we'll pay for your apartment when you uh, report to the minor leagues. Well, things like this were already written into some of the contracts that the teams were obligated to take care of these things. But the general manager, in many cases, was just trying to paint this as a rosy picture, like the team is doing you a really good favor. Isn't this wonderful how, how great we're treating you? And Bob was blowing the lid off of stuff like that, too, and also mentions that uh, his then-teammate, Mike Marshall, uh, also very, very astute, um, that these guys are really starting to catch on. And now all of a sudden, here we have yet another conflation with Marvin Miller trying to get more and more uh, power in the, in the hands of the players and getting better treatment for them. All this is coming together at a very, uh, a very formative moment, again, all in the late 1960s. You know, um, in in Bounton's follow-up to Ball 4, I think it was called, I'm glad you didn't take it personally, he recounted this mm-hmm. conversation with Bowie Kuhn, and he said every time he said something to Bowie Kuhn, it would be grumble, grumble. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I remember that comment, too. I, I don't have that book anymore, but I did uh, I did read it when it came out. And I think if you recall the cover of it, um, it had like a, a, a baseball that was sort of made up with a face, and one of the eyes, the, the baseball face, had black, it was a black eye. Yes. <laughs> And Bowie Kuhn just couldn't convince me. You know, um, speak about Bowie Kuhn for a minute. Do you think, uh, does he deserve to be in the Hall of Fame? I mean, he's there, but I mean, should he have been? Um, I will make the argument of yes, but I will also make a very diligent argument also that Marvin Miller should be there too. That was going to be my next question too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, I easily make that argument that um, unfortunately toward the end, and one thing I, I disagree with, Marvin Miller, I think, was uh, wrong in trying to defend um, the, the drug testing, uh, keeping keeping that uh, out of the public eye, keeping uh, especially as, as the steroid issue started to ramp up. I think it was related directly to that. And I think Miller was wrong about that. But it's just undeniable that from the time that he came into office in 1966, going through, even up to the point of the Messerschmitt decision in uh, December of 1975, that he gains real freedom for the players. And of course, while the owners, and, and you know, by this time, Q was fully on board with the owners that, you know, this the striking down the reserve clause is just going to ruin the game. Obviously, that just proved to be a complete falsehood. And now you have uh, even even the lowest ranking major league player just making, uh, I mean, I've lost track of the, uh, the numbers now. I think the minimum salary is more like $700,000. It's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars now. Um, and of course, you know, we have, you know, multi-year, multi-multi-million dollar contracts now. And franchises like the Cubs and the Dodgers and the Yankees are worth billions of dollars. So we have to look back and say the game wasn't ruined by virtue of making the players, uh, making the players free agents, or allowing them to have uh, have true free agency, and, and this is all the work of Marvin Miller. And uh, he, Miller was kind of blasé about it, saying, "Well, you know, I was hired to do a job for the players, and uh, he uh, he was he was just taking care of his charges." Uh, and, and, I, and it didn't look like he was. Um in his first couple of years, it looked like he was treading very lightly because he couldn't really get their confidence at first. Yes, that yes, that's very true. Um, uh, I, I had a brief interview for my first book. I did talk to Jim Bowden very briefly. And uh, part of the problem with Marvin Miller was that he, well, certainly to his advantage, he was an economist. He wasn't a lawyer. He was an economist. But his prior position was with the United Steelworkers. And... Here you have this exactly what Bowden was telling me. Here you have a bunch of players with a very conservative mindset 
you know, all of a sudden now who's coming in to lead your union? The guy with the steelworkers union, what's the, the image of uh, picket lines with the steelworkers union? You have thugs on the picket line with, you know, really clubs and, and chains and uh, all this violence and, and such. And the players didn't want any part of that. You know, that was, that was completely against their, uh, their, their every fiber of their being. But Marvin Miller comes in and says, okay, we're going to get you a little bit of better deal with the, uh, with the television contract because money at that point was still going into the pension fund. So he's, he's kind of shepherding that process along. And even minor uh, details such as uh, getting them a better deal for their contract, selling their uh, their to be put on baseball cards. So he keeps chipping away from basically 1967 up through getting baseball's first collective bargaining agreement. And now after that bargaining agreement is struck in 69, all of a sudden, now players are starting to buy more into him. You know, he's getting positive results for them, and uh, this can't be denied. And again, uh, the ability to take their issues to arbitration, that did not exist prior. So he's really looking out for the best interest, and now you have that younger breed of player in the early 20s who don't know about all the, the conservative issues from the, the 50s and 60s. Uh, they're not part of the, the older generation that was brought up and spoon-fed with this, you know, well, how great it is to be uh, paid for playing a game. They have a different leader now, and Marvin Miller is just you know, undeniably instrumental in, uh, in moving all that forward. And franchise values kept going up throughout the 1970s up to the current day. Player salaries and their benefits, uh, if, if not, they've not looked back. They, they've just kept going up and up. And uh, you know, all this is the, uh, the doing of uh, Marvin Miller's first steps when he came in as the, uh, the director of the Players Association. Yeah, that's true. It's the best labor organization in sports. I mean – Without a doubt, they never lose. Uh, back to your point about Bowie Kuhn, though. Uh, again, I think that that baseball mentality is knowledge of the legal system. Uh, consolidating the league offices, this is, a, a, I think, an often overlooked point. Uh, in years prior to Kuhn's arrival, the league office was in whatever city was occupied or where the particular uh, league president lived. So I believe at that time, uh, Chubb Feeney was the National League president. Well, he had San Francisco ties, so the National League office was out in San Francisco. Uh, so part of what Kuhn was trying to do is at least get all the offices together in the same city. They don't have to be in the same building, but just at least get them together in the same city because long-distance travel is an issue. Uh, we didn't have technology such as conferencing or even our conversation over the Internet, as we're doing right now. Uh, things like that didn't exist back uh, almost 50 years ago. So by trying to consolidate the, the highest offices of baseball, all the administrative functions and whatnot, at least having them in New York and say, well, we have to meet with the National League. Okay, you have to take a cab ride to a different building, that sort of thing. Uh, so handling the administrative structure was important to getting the game to move forward and uh, update, updating its image to a degree. And again, that was helped greatly by the, uh, the centennial event in the summer of 1969. So Q comes in. At a, a propitious time, also, and again, he, <laughs> he reveals himself as a, a stuffed shirt and a, a lackey of the owners to a certain degree, and then he falls out of favor with the owners, of course. And uh, naturally, uh, he got into the, the famous tussles with uh, with Charlie Finley multiple times, and uh, so that was uh, that that stretches beyond the, the time frame of uh, of my new book. But nonetheless, that all plays into the credentials that Kuhn happened to build up during the early part of his career. So. Just as I thought his election to the Hall of Fame was warranted, I think you still have to let it go hand in hand with having Marvin Miller in, which unfortunately 
uh, Miller did not make it this last time around. No. You know, and, and going back to 1968, you know, until I read the book, uh, your book, I didn't realize how complicated and like in cases of, you know, Seattle and Montreal, just how haphazard expansion was to these cities. And, you know, they tried to have a more coordinated effort. The, the real stilted expansion was back in 1960, 1961, and the, the addition of two teams in, in both leagues. Um, there was a little bit more chicanery, if we, if we could call it that. We did have the shifting of franchises to some degree. We had the old Washington Senators now becoming the modern-day Minnesota Twins. The installation of a brand-new Senators team in Washington because, again, we don't want to ruffle the feathers of the politicians and have uh, baseball lose its antitrust exemption. But what happened there was that the National League had fully intended to expand in 1962. Again, the uh, fallout from the the failed Continental League, the proposed third major league. Um, Branch Rickey had a hand in that, and the idea was to get a, a new National League uh, franchise back in New York proper in some place. And so they end up at the, the Polo Grounds uh, with the New York Mets. And, of course, the Houston Colt 45s were were given life uh, as a, a new outpost in, uh, in Texas. Uh, but what happened, the American League decided, well, it seemed like they wanted to beat the National League to the punch, so they decided they were going to expand a year earlier. So, therefore, we have the shifting of the franchises in the American League and the birth of the, the then Los Angeles Angels uh, in 1961. The next time around in 68-69, there had to be a coordinated effort. Uh, again, this is done under the Eckert regime, but I have to think that uh, the owners themselves uh, were allowed themselves the opportunity to do so in a more coordinated fashion. Uh, but as I pointed out in the, the main general expansion chapter, uh, that was also fraught with peril too, because uh, you had the American League was very willing to split into two divisions. The National League was very uh, tradition-bound. And uh, finally, I believe it was Joe Cronin finally uh, stood up and, and made the exclamation saying, you, you can't sell a 12th-place team. And can you imagine if you, you kept all 12 teams in one in one solid league with no uh, separation by division? Uh, you have a team that's in 11th place by the 4th of July or something, you're going to leapfrog nine teams to get to the top. I don't think so. I don't think that's going to happen. So uh, common sense finally prevailed on the part of the National League uh, to also uh, split into East and West divisions. So that coordinated effort uh, helped out a lot. But yes, the, the, the story of uh, the problems that Montreal had, almost losing their franchise before they even began play because of financial difficulties. Uh, the Padres were on a little bit more solid financial footing. However, that fell apart very quickly, and the franchise almost moved in 1974. They almost moved to Washington, D.C., uh, Seattle was fraught with money issues right from the beginning. I believe they had to, t- they took a loan out um, uh, to help pay their concessionaire very early in the season. I forget ex- what the exact circumstances were. I know it's in the book, but um, all of a sudden they were beholden to a, an unexpected debt early on in the season. And Bill Daly, a Cleveland interest, uh, who was buying into the, uh, he was part of the ownership group of the, uh, of the pilots. Uh, all of a sudden, he's just looked at as an absentee owner who doesn't want to spend any money. And Seattle is really in deep trouble almost right from the very beginning. And the most solid franchise was the Kansas City Royals. Uh, thanks to, to Ewing Kaufman, local ownership, uh, a benevolent owner. Uh, I just talked on uh, Saturday to Bill Wurz, who uh, 
worked for the Royals in their earliest years and also worked in the commissioner's office later on, said that you know, Ewing Coffin really was a genuinely a very beloved person in uh, metropolitan Kansas City. So that was the franchise that really had the most stability. And uh, the other ones were fraught with their own perils. But ironically, the Expos had one of the best attendances. They had 1.2 million people that were drawn to Jerry Park at uh, sort of a, a hybridized uh, stadium that was constructed out of a, a city park, basically. So your San Diego Padres had a brand new stadium that they were uh, playing in. They drew something like 550,000. It was really, really bad attendance. And uh, Montreal had this... Uh, this uh, slapdash stadium of uh, Jerry Park with the the, sw- the uh, community swimming pool out beyond the outfield fence. And they, <laughs> they drew 1.2 million people. You know, another interesting thing that um, came to light in your book was the the idea of those three eight-team leagues by region that was proposed. And that's sort of like prefaced uh, or foreshadowed like interleague play. I thought, just thought was fascinating for 1968, 69, even think of something like that. That was one of the fun things of, uh, of doing research. And uh, again, here's, here's the, graduate, uh, the graduate work at uh, the Trinity really coming to the fore. Um, as I'm assembling material for my last book and also this book, um, just go to the Hall of Fame website and they have uh, a feature on there called Abner, which is basically uh, an inventory of everything that they have available for, uh, for people to research there. And you put in your search term and you get all kinds of great information that comes back. Part of their trove is the papers of Bowie Kuhn, which were donated to the Hall of Fame, uh, wonderfully cataloged. They have a, a full manifesto of everything involved in that. And you can download it to a Word document. So I'm not completely technologically deficient. Put it in a Word document and just start searching around for 1969. And part of that collection is... Um, uh, divisional uh, issues and uh, executive council meeting notes and that sort of thing. And as I went looking through these folders up there, there that document jumped right out in front of me. And uh, I thought, you know, this is maybe this is written about before, but in the course of putting this book together, and again, here we are uh, looking at uh, uh, expansion for 1969, and I run across this document where it has exactly that information in it, and it was uh, split geographically. And I believe, I, I'm not sure if it was noted in the caption, uh, but someplace uh, within that general area of the, of the narrative, um, it's interesting that Seattle is not listed. Milwaukee, Milwaukee is listed. And here, that document, I believe, was dated in August of 1969. So somebody somewhere in the creation of that document, even that early, with the season only being four months old, had a very, a very strong suspicion that that Seattle franchise is going to transfer to Milwaukee. And here it is in black and white on that piece of paper that you find in, <laughs> in Bowie Kuhn's uh, notes. It was, uh, that, that was a really fascinating find for me. As soon as I saw that, I said, I have to put that, uh, that three-divisional setup in the, in the book. Definitely. Maybe it was researched by Bud Seelig. That could have been because uh, Bud was very active. And, of course, the backstory with a, a new franchise going to Milwaukee was that uh, that city had lost the Braves after 1965, and it was a very, very ugly split. Um, there was original thought that a National League franchise was going to go back into Milwaukee, but there was very uh, it left the whole situation of the Braves moving out uh, left a lot left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So uh, that's a suspicion of why the Montreal franchise uh, was awarded rather than uh, interest in Milwaukee. It was great disappointment in Milwaukee. Um, I found a Milwaukee newspaper uh, online 
uh, there's a big, huge uh, front page headline when uh, when Montreal ended up getting the uh, expansion franchise rather than uh, the folks in Milwaukee. But uh, Bud Selig was uh, was certainly a key player in that. And not only that, but uh, in 1969, we also had the hosting of the uh, Chicago White Sox played uh, several series up there and to, to great benefit. They, they drew fantastically. I think they averaged something like 20,000 fans for each of the nine games that they played up there. And back in Comiskey Park, uh, they were averaging maybe 5,000 fans a game. Was, attendance in Chicago was very, very bad. And uh, the, the glimmer of hope there was that we could, uh, we could revive baseball interest in Milwaukee. Look, we're playing uh, nine games there. White Sox are playing nine games there. They're, they're drawing fantastically well. So this really opened the door to be able to uh, have a transfer of uh, a woe-be-gone franchise like the Pilots to have somebody like Seelig saying, hey, uh, we, we, can, we can provide a home for these guys. We have an older stadium, but we can have, uh, we can have baseball again at County Stadium in Milwaukee. And that's exactly what happened. Being in graduate school like you were and you hone your skills as a researcher, and like you say, you pointed out that um, the geographical stuff, um, was there anything else that was really surprising or unusual that you uncovered while doing your research, something that really just shocked you? Yes, and this was a a fun trip down to the New York Public Library. Um, Among their trove of information, and uh, boy is it a trove, uh, they have the papers of Robert Moses. And Robert Moses was... uh, the, uh, the key architect, uh, for better or worse, of uh, much of modern New York City, uh, came to power as the park commissioner in the early 1930s, I believe it was, roughly around the time of the Depression, and just kept accumulating more and more and more power uh, from the time that he took office, up and really up until the, the time that he finally stepped away in uh, the late 1960s. Well, in 1960, the Summer Olympics were held in Rome. This is about the time now that the Continental League is uh, thinking of, kind of uh, trying to make a run for becoming a new major league. And Bill Shea, from, from whom we get Shea Stadium or had gotten Shea Stadium, um, he is part of a contingent that accompanies Moses, Moses to Rome. They send contingents to uh, all over the all over the world because this is all part of the process of. Uh, the construction of not just Shea Stadium, what became Shea Stadium, but that's all, all part and parcel of all the grounds that were participants for the 1964-65 World's Fair held in Flushing Meadow. And as part of the investigation, all these all these delegations are sent out all over the country, uh, all over the world, because what they're trying to do is formulate uh, what countries are going to have uh, specialty things for the individual pavilions for you know, each country had a representative pavilion at the World's Fair. And Moses, Moses and Bill Shea were part of the contingent to go to Rome. And of course, Shea Stadium itself designed as uh, the backside of it, of course, is very open, but um, um, designed very much like the Roman Colosseum. And I, and I actually found the documents Thankfully, uh, among the boxes and folders that I looked at at the New York Public Library, I did find those documents, and uh, that's fully important. From the state, from the state, from the state, wrote about the, the chapter I wrote about stadium construction. Um, it was really just a thrill to have spent a good part of the day at the New York Public Library and looking out and finding the folders. You can't, there's manifest of manifest of manifest of what's in the Robert Moses paper at the New York Public Library. They're all in 
chronological order from start to finish. And I tried to pick a time frame of roughly when the way for design of the stadium, design of the stadium, for the stadium, uh, vis-a-vis also the, uh, the construction of the World's Fair. And I just happened to find some of the right folders with that information. But uh, it was just very interesting that what the idea was, uh, pardon, was intended also also be to also be uh, also serve as a, uh, a breaking ground or training ground for trials for the next Olympic Games. So what they wanted to do is build a coliseum-like stadium, which they did, but they end up having the idea next of actually having a, a running track, which would have been going having a center track cutting through uh, part of the outfield, and uh, that was just completely impractical. So uh, they abandoned the idea of uh, trying to conflate a new stadium, not just for baseball, but also for uh, part of Olympic track meet, uh, track and field events. Uh, so, so that ended up being mixed. But uh, in, in, like you say, that that uh, aha moment for me was uh, uh, discovering those original papers at the uh, at the New York Public Library. And uh, again, that's all part of that uh, historical research training. That's great. Well, this has been a very interesting time speaking with you. And of course, you know, we thank you because your time is valuable. Um, what is it going to be going to be? You have another book in the works? Another book is in the works. It has uh, has very very little to do with uh, baseball. Um, uh, it, you might recall or may have known uh, working in uh, in media and communications uh, here in Connecticut. We were blessed for, for literally for decades with the voice of Bob Steele. Uh, he was a uh, morning voice on uh, WTIC AM radio. Um, he came on the air in 1936. And was basically on the air on the air for uh, over sixty years. Um, he had a morning show. He had his own style, his own wit. He had uh, a very definitive way of how he constructed the uh, the format for his show. Uh, corny jokes and puns were his stock and trade, but he was also uh, a linguist as well. Um, he was very particular about uh, how people should pronounce words. He had a word for the day. Uh, that was uh, that was one of his uh, one of his standards. So he would have a word of the day was like uh, athlete. It's not athlete, you know, things like that. Um, he uh, he had just a tremendous following. The point of the, uh, the book I'm researching right now, I believe it's 1942 or 1943, where he comes on the air. Now he has his own morning show, and uh, once he has a once he has acquired that particular slot. Um, he basically has it up until the time that he goes part-time and sometime in the 1990s and he steps away and he just basically does the show only once uh, once a month. But uh, for decades, um, he had one of the best shows in the, in the greater Hartford area, southern New England. And at one time, it, had, it did have the largest market share in the entire country. Uh, no biography has been written of him. Uh, and uh, that's the project I'm undertaking right now. So there's uh, there's no baseball connection per se there. He was a sportsman. He he was a, a former boxer. He enjoyed boxing. Um, I've gone through some of his diaries, and he uh, he's attended many games at Yankee Stadium in Fenway Park again the, just before the the Mets even existed. Um, and, uh, he was a, a betting man. He did like to to gamble on uh, on sporting events. But uh, that's my next project. So I'm uh, partway through the life of. Uh, uh, radio legend and uh, Radio Hall of Fame member, Bob Steele. Well, we've been talking with uh, Paul Hensler, who's the author of The New Boys of Summer, Baseball's Radical Transformation in the Late 60s. And Paul, we really appreciate you being on the show today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the, 
appreciate the opportunity, Bob. Thank you so much. You're welcome. You've been listening to the New Books and Sports Podcast. I'm Bob D'Angelo, and thank you for joining us. Until next time, remember that the game is what matters. We'll talk to you next time.